man, it is hot out. It's like, it's like I feel back at home in South Florida. You know what they call this in Florida, don't you? Dead of winter. Uh, it, it was so hot the other day, I opened up all the windows and stripped down to my underwear, and I felt better, but the people on the bus were really uncomfortable. <laughs> all right, last week, we talked about our relationship with the king's stuff and the need to use the things that he places in our lives as we're supposed to so that they accomplish the purpose that they were intended to. And if you weren't able to be here, I really recommend uh, take some time this week, listen in on the media page of our website. It is that important. But if you think talking about how we invest our currency is uncomfortable, you ain't heard nothing yet. Today we're going to talk about a really uncomfortable subject and that is when Jesus was speaking of our standing before him in judgment. I love to say, hey, I've got a loophole for you. I can't. What I can say is that no less an authority than Jesus himself told us how we can be ready for it. So with that in mind, let's dig into Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31, move further and deeper into the text of this chapter. Matthew 25, 31 says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire. Prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He replied, I will tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, make us as real as your word is. Make us as authentic and transparent as the words Jesus spoke were. Make your people to be molded and shaped, Lord, into beings that will stand before you and look like your son. Possess your heart. Lord God Almighty, we want nothing in this place but for you to be lifted up, you to be exalted, you to be placed on your throne before all of these people, all who are listening online, all within the sound of my voice. Father God, be glorified in this place. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so Jesus is, begins this passage by saying when the Son of Man comes, not if. For the first time, he's speaking directly of his return. In, in previous parables, he said things like, again, it will be like, or at that time. But here, he gives us details about what his actual return will be like. Jesus will not return as the suffering servant of Isaiah. When he comes back, it will be as King of kings and Lord of lords. When we see Jesus face to face, we will see him in the same state that John saw him in in Revelation 1, 17 and 18. John was the close friend of Jesus. 
Uh, the Bible tells us that he laid at the breast of Jesus when they ate. They would have a table about this high. And so they would recline. They would eat like this. One hand there and one hand eating. And so John would have been here and Jesus would have been right there. So the Bible says that John laid at the breast of Jesus. He was closest friend of, of Jesus on the earth. He's called the disciple whom Jesus loves. And yet, Revelation 1.17, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death in hell. That should be the picture that we have of Jesus as we look at this passage. The glorious king, the great judge. He was coming with all the angels. I want you to think about that. Heaven will be emptied of every angel because they will all want to be with him. When Jesus was born, it says there was a great multitude of angels that were declaring his glory. But here it says that all God's angels will leave heaven and accompany Jesus to take his place. I want you to think about that because if you were in eternity right now and you could go to any moment you wanted and visit it, where would you go? Would you go to the moment of creation? Would you go to the crucifixion? Would you go to the empty cross? Would you visit Atlantis, see the dinosaurs? No angel wants to miss this moment. It is the coronation of the king of heaven. All the nations will be gathered before him. It is the, the resumption, not the conclusion, but the resumption of the story. You see God creating in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Man is told to rule over. God is, has fellowship with man in the garden. And man falls away in sin. And the rest of the book is about the restoration of humanity to their rightful place that they can occupy as fe- in fellowship with the Father. I mentioned this last week that the only thing God gets out of, the, out of the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is a family. That's the only thing he gets at the end that he doesn't have at the beginning. So all of the angels are accompanying Jesus at this moment as he is coronated King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Bible says all the angels or all the nations will be gathered before him. No one is excused. Every person who has ever lived will be judged. This is the great harvest. It comes before the great white throne judgment that unbelievers will face. It occurs after the sheep and the goats have been separated when the righteous go into eternal life and the wicked face judgment. Revelation 20, 11 said, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I have a, a friend, known him for years, and he's pastoring a very large church in Mobile, Alabama, and as such, he feels a responsibility to involve himself with things that are going on in the town, and he spoke about some of the things that the town council was involved in in the month of June. And he had an activist actually friend him on Facebook and begin a dialogue with him, and I, I looked at this dialogue, but one of the things the activist said to him was, you know, the Bible is anti-LGBTQ. 
And he responded so well. He said, look, you know, I, I treated him like a peer, treated him like a fellow citizen. You have every right to say what you want. But here is the message of the church that whatever doesn't conform, you could, because you could say the same thing about the Bible being anti-theft. You could say the same thing about the Bible being anti-lying. You could say the Bible, but what the Bible teaches us is anything that has been produced because of the brokenness of, on, of this earth due to the curse of sin must be forsaken, not excused, but forsaken, repented of, so that we can begin to be formed in the likeness of the king of kings. The book of life is open, and by comparison, the acts of the righteous now contrast the deeds of the wicked. Those who had ridiculed the Bible in the church now have the works of the body of Christ and the truth and authority of the word of God open before them as the standard of judgment. You can choose not to believe it. You have every right to reject it. But I would warn you and counsel you that Jesus predicted his sufferings. He predicted his death. The Bible speaks of how he would die a thousand years before crucifixion was invented. The Bible speaks of how Messiah would die. They have pierced my hands and my feet. The Bible speaks of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus said that he would rise from the grave. Jesus said that the church would be birthed. Jesus said that he would ascend to the right hand of heaven and he also said he's going to come back to judge the living and the dead so you can you can say you know I know that Jesus predicted all those things I just don't think the last one is correct and that's on you that's on you you have the right to do that but the deeds of man Jesus judges us both on the deeds that we've done and we're going to talk about the significance but also on that which we have not done Jesus is not saying however just go and do good things and you'll get into heaven. If you think that, you're mistaken. That would make getting into heaven a matter of our own actions and not Jesus's. It would be salvation by works. But Matthew 7, 21 through 23 says that there will be people who try to give Jesus a shopping list of what they've done. But Lord, didn't we do this for you? And didn't we do even up to and including casting out demons? Didn't we do all these things in your name? And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. So Jesus is not teaching here that if we just do a bunch of good works, we go into heaven. The rest of the passage goes on to say they didn't put the words of Jesus into practice. Now, there are three elements here that I see in this passage that can help us to evaluate what we are compositionally. One of the things I, I was looking at, um, uh, oh, I bought a case of them, I think, the book Every Man's Battle. And it's a story of primarily uh, some men, and they, they were Christian men, they were going to church, but they had an addiction to pornography. And one of them said he realized he had to engage the battle. He said, I just didn't want to get to the point where I just got old and, and just it didn't matter to me anymore. In other words, I wasn't stimulated, I wasn't aroused by it anymore. Because here's the problem. You can wait till your flesh just no longer has a desire for the junk, the problem is if you were suddenly to be put into a young body, you'd still have that desire. Imagine a tire that's low on air and it's like, you know, or it's, it's got a, a pressure point and it's bumping every time you drive. And so you lower the air pressure and it goes away. What happens as soon as you reinflate it, the bump comes back. And that's the issue is not just what we do externally, but what's going on internally in us that is fueling what we do externally so the first difference that I see between the sheep and the goats is the preparation 
Jesus substantiates his judgment. He doesn't just call them sheep and goats. He shows them why they are sheep and goats. So I want you to notice something in verse 34. The king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Now, I mentioned last week, if you were here, my wife and I went to the same school system. We, uh, we graduated, we, or we, we went to the same school pretty much all our lives. I, I was friends with her brother in middle school, but I never met her until after we were both graduated. Now, I'm trying to think if what I would do if an angel of the Lord had come to me in, say, 10th grade, and see that girl coming down the hall? That's your wife. I'd have been like, no way. Nuh-uh. She ain't going to be my wife. Not, like, she's, she's like taller than me and she's a volleyball player and I'm like five foot six and like 105 pounds and look like a frustration pencil, right? Pff, big hair all over the place. But if I had that knowledge but couldn't say anything to her, what would I do with it? Maybe I'd go, you know, let, let me buy a house, right? Let me, let me go, uh, you know, try to figure out all the th- stuff she loves. And, and, and in other words, I'm going to prepare for that relationship. And so when we read that heaven is prepared for you for, since the creation of the world, it doesn't mean that some were ordained for heaven and some were ordained for hell because the Bible clearly said it is not God's will that any should perish. And if you just read that passage along with me, you see that hell was not created for human beings at all. It says, go and depart from me into the hell created what? For the devil and his angels. That's what, that's what hell was created for. What God is saying is because he knows everyone who's gonna occupy heaven, God is omniscient, he prepares heaven for the people who will occupy heaven forever. And Jesus goes on to say that your place in the kingdom has been prepared since the creation of the world. It's been prepared since the creation of the world. We understand from the text that God, like I said, didn't create people for hell, but it means because God knew who would choose him and walk in his will, he gets the kingdom ready for them. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come back again. If you knew who you were going to marry when you were in high school, if you knew what your wedding day was going to be like, but you couldn't tell anyone, what would you do differently? You would, like I said, you'd study that person. You'd learn all you could about them. You'd get ready for that day. That's what Jesus says the Father is doing, to be prepared, to be prepared for that day. Jesus is saying that our Father is excited about that day. He created you for fellowship with Him. And that day is the day that all of God's desire will be fulfilled. It will culminate in Him saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of your Master. He has been preparing for that day since He finished creating the world. The earthly evidence is what's going on in us. The earthly evidence, what the evidence of God's working in our lives now are the works we do. The, the kingdom evidence is God's proclamation. Well done, good and faithful servant, and his reception of you. Look at verse 40 with me. The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus is telling us that the things in this world that seem to be wrong are actually opportunities 
to be God's hand of blessing. Years and I mean, we're going back years. I was working for a restaurant and I was getting home around 11.30 and it was like bitter cold in Fort Lauderdale. It was like 55 degrees or something. It was like bone chilling. And I'm wearing a, a members only jacket. Y'all remember members only? Some, some of y'all are the last member of the members only jacket. Like, uh, still wearing that thing. Well, I, was, I had a, a black coat on and I'm, and I'm driving home and I see a guy on a, on a bench and he's sleeping, homeless guy. And all he's got on is a t-shirt and, and a pair of jeans. And in that moment, the verse came into my head. If you have two coats, give to the one who has one. The problem was the one I had on was my good coat, right? So we always give the other coat, right? We always give, well, Lord, let me drive home. Let this guy freeze for another half an hour or so. And, uh, and, and, and then I'll get the, you know, the other coat and I'll, and I'll bring it back. And, and you laugh at me, but if you were out of 55 degrees and you're used to 90, you know what they call this kind of weather in Florida? Dead or winter. Okay, so, so it, you're, not, you're not used to it and all you got is like a t-shirt on and it's cold and it's windy and you're outside in the middle of the night, there's no sun. Um, you wouldn't want to wait an extra half hour and the spirit was pretty clear that I shouldn't wait an extra half hour. So I just gave him the one that I had on. And you know why I did that? Because I couldn't do anything else. See, the, Jesus is not saying, hey, run out and do a bunch of good works. Jesus is saying, be so filled with me that good works come naturally, that you do what I would do, that you reflect my conduct. And so I don't care if I'm talking to Pentecostals, Episcopalians, Lutheran, Baptists. You know, we can, we can argue all about spiritual gifts and all that stuff, but one thing the Bible tells us all, be filled with the Spirit of God. And that means to get before him and say, God, whatever you have for me, I want. I surrender myself, I empty myself, and I ask you to give me all that you have for me. Because we can't do it, we can't look like Jesus if we don't have the heart of the Father. You know, it's interesting because Matthew 25 is kind of like the, the, the other side of the coin of Luke 15. Luke 15 is three stories about something that's lost. And, and the lengths that the owner will go to to get back what's lost. In Matthew 25, we're seeing three stories on how not to be lost. So they're kind of, they're kind of like I said, they're flip sides of the, of the same coin. And we see in Luke chapter 15 that story of the prodigal son. And we always focus on him and we focus on his lostness and we focus on his sin. But he comes back. The father wraps his arms around him, puts a cloak on him, puts a ring on his finger. And we see there's another son. The other son is in the household of the father. But he doesn't have the heart of the father. Why don't you think about that? He's in the house of the father. But he doesn't have the heart of the father. I'm not going in and celebrating. I, I, I mean, and he starts talking about, I, I slave and I work all day for you. First of all, we tend to exaggerate that, right? I, I doubt this guy had bruises and broken bones. I work and slave. And we talked about this last week. The assignments that the master gives us are to shape us, to bless us, right? But instead he has his focus on him, on himself. I, I work and slave and you've never given me even so much as a young goat to eat with my friends. He is in the house of the father but he doesn't have the heart of the father. And that's what Jesus is warning us against. Don't be that older brother. Don't be around the things of God. Don't be acquainted with the things of God, familiar with the things of God, but not be familiar with the heart of God. The second area Jesus focuses on is their inward response, namely the element of surprise. First off, it seems like they share the same characteristic. Um, they, it seems like they're both surprised because both of them say, uh, you know, but Lord, uh, you know, I, I don't remember when you were sick. 
I don't remember when, when you were in prison. I don't remember when you needed clothes. And the other ones were saying, Lord, when do we see you like that and not do it? So it seems like they're both surprised. They, they share this, this same characteristic. The problem is that it's very, very different in the why. It goes back to the heart. The lost, the goats, are actually saying, in other words, they're trying to justify themselves. But Lord, just like the people in Matthew uh, chapter 7, but Lord, I, you know, if I'd have known that it was you, of course I'd have given you my sandwich. If I'd have known that it was you, of course I'd have given you my coat. The righteous are surprised because just like John, they get in the presence of Jesus and they're like, no, that's okay, man. <laughs> because they know, there's no way I'm worthy to come into the presence. Now the Bible says that he will finish the work. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And so we will be made, the Bible says, in the likeness and image of Jesus as we enter in to the gates of our new kingdom. But in that moment, when, we, when we're, we're, we're being separated and we see the glory of Jesus, nope, there's no way. There's no way. You're not gonna be thinking, if you're a righteous person, all right, I got this. No problem. Man, I mean, you, I, I did this and I fed this pe- person and I used to do prison ministry and I used to teach. You're not gonna be saying that. Your focus is gonna be on him and on his glory and on his righteousness. You're thinking there's, if that's the standard, right? It's easy to say, hey, Jesus is the standard, right? Jesus said, be ye perfect. Paul said, I pray for your perfection. Doesn't mean we're ever gonna be that until that moment of transformation. But Jesus, the Bible repeatedly says, that's the standard. That's the standard. Because I tell people all the time, there's two ways to get in heaven. And people say, no, no, there is a pastor. There's only one way in heaven. Jesus Christ, right? Sounds righteous, right? I said, no, there's two. There ain't two. Yes, there is. There's, there's accepting Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life, or you live a perfect life. From birth to death, you live an absolutely sinless, perfect life. I promise you, you won't go to hell. Anybody in that condition? Because if so, you're dismissed. You, you can go. If, if you have never sinned, you never even thought about it from the time you were born, you, I have nothing to say to you. On the other hand, maybe you need the altar worse than anybody else because you might just be deluded. But, but either we live a perfect, holy, sinless life from birth to death, or we need Jesus Christ. And if we need Jesus Christ, if we confess that we need Jesus Christ for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, if we confess that we're part of the all, the Bible says anyone who says he's without sin is what? A liar, right? So if we confess that, then we're saying naturally, I don't meet up the standards of heaven. Standards of heaven are perfect. God is perfect. Jesus said, be ye perfect, even as your heavenly father is perfect. Heaven is perfect. I don't reach up to those standards. No, but what happens is you have the righteousness, the perfection of Christ imparted to you so that you can begin to be, that's called grace, by the way. Grace is the substance by which God can work on your messy self while you're in the process of becoming your perfected self. And so he gives us that grace and he allows us and he calls us to walk in it. Look at what James says in James chapter two. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. What good is that? 
In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. In other words, James is saying, some of y'all demons are doing better than you are. That's, that's, man, that's a wake up call. Demons are doing better than you are because some of us, man, we don't have, we think we have the faith to saunter into heaven. We don't have the faith to get to church on Sunday. You don't have the faith to get to church on Sunday. I guarantee you don't have the faith to witness to your neighbor. And I guarantee you don't have the faith to give up what's precious to you to help somebody else and to bless them. But we think that we have this incredible faith. And what James is saying, who was a half-brother of Jesus, and what Jesus is saying and what Paul said repeatedly is, look, if you are truly immersed, not just in the, in the symbolism of baptism, but immersed. This was Paul's theology in two words, in Christ. He says these, uses these words over and over and over. Baptism symbolizes it, but I am immersed in Christ. How can I not look like Christ and think like Christ and love like Christ? It will naturally flow out of me. If I have the spirit of Christ, I'm going to reflect the heart of the Father. My friend and I, we once had a discussion about people who won't give, don't care about what's happening when they're not in church. They don't care about what's going on in children's church right now. They don't care about if the church can pay the bills. He said to me, I don't understand that. It's a joy and a privilege to give because I've been in churches where it wasn't because lives weren't being touched. And see, you don't say that unless you're excited about the things of God. It will flow naturally through your life. And you know what I told him? I said, you know what? Even if I didn't feel that rush and that joy, I would think that you'd at least want to do those things out of the fear of the Lord, that someday you're going to have to stand and give an account of your blessings and what you did with them like we talked about last week. Do you want to stand before Jesus in his glory, surrounded by every angel of heaven and say, I don't care if kids heard about you. I don't care if missionaries preached. I don't care if orphanages stayed open. I don't care if the church continued to operate. But here's the thing, and it's what I'm understanding more and more that we will all become established, just as concrete sets, we will all become established in what we actually are. There comes a point where their confirmation becomes fixed in who and what they are. Those who are sheep have been conformed to the image of Jesus Christ to the point where they cannot be anything else. Remember that old VBS song, Kids Church song? My wife would play it because she's getting, I just want to be a sheep, blah, 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 right? And, and if you think you got, you know, that's, once you get that stuck in your head, man, that song is in your head. I know it's weird, sing it. Remind yourself, that's what I want to be. I don't want to be a Pharisee. I don't want to be somebody who looks righteous but doesn't have the right heart. See, that's what's going on in our generation. Let me tell you about what I see in this generation happening now. Is people will say, you know what, you don't agree with what I agree with. Therefore, you're evil. You're racist, sexist, homophobic, bigoted, whatever. They'll, they'll give you a label. And what Jesus is saying is something very radically different. Jesus is saying people who are actually righteous... Don't point fingers. That's what the Pharisees did. See, the Pharisees were given, the, uh, the Jewish people were given 613 laws. And they were told to obey these laws. God knew they couldn't because they were defective. They were broken. They were cursed by sin. So he knew there's no way they're going to keep even these 600. God could have given 100,000 laws. You know what? I'm just going to give you 613. He gave him 613 laws. And the point was to make anyone who tried to keep the law realize I can't do it. 
And I need the power of God to elevate me to be able to keep these laws. You know what they did instead? Do what this generation does. Yeah, but I keep 547 of them. She only keeps 483. Therefore, I'm more righteous than her. You're missing the point. Because if you miss heaven by that much, you still miss heaven. It doesn't matter that it's like shooting at the moon. It doesn't matter. If you don't hit it, you don't hit it. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell us. That it's not about doing better than your neighbor. But see, what he's trying to help us to understand is that, look, when we look out at the world and we see what Jesus was talking about, people who are hungry and thirsty, people who are lonely, people who are in poverty, people who are sick, this, God gives us these opportunities in a broken world to display his love and his grace and the heart that he has. And, and this is what we need to understand. He gives us that so that we can prove and verify. My, uh, my oldest daughter, Bonnie, her, her and her husband just moved here and her best friend in childhood, they're still friends to this day, was a young Indian girl from Calcutta that was adopted. She had all sorts of health issues as a baby. And her parents adopted her. And, and, and the mom came into our church. Dad was a, was a Muslim. And so, yeah, it, it, was a, it was a weird household. The mom came into our church. And so Karen was raised in the church. But like I said, Karen had all sorts of health problems. And before I got there, they were in another church. And Karen was in the hospital for an extended period of time. And the pastor didn't want to go visit her because he might get sick. And the mom, knowing how that sounded, said, yeah, but I know, but he, he did love people, but he did love the Lord. And I said, not when the Lord's name was Karen, he didn't. Point blank. Point blank. Put yourself before somebody else. Put your, I'm not talking about in the middle of a pandemic. I'm not talking about in the middle of a plague but I won't go visit sick people because I might get sick, and you should not be a pastor. Shocking the church closed down. I was absolutely surprised that the church closed down. Not at all. Not at all. Because Jesus said, look, this is a broken world, and there's hunger and thirst because of sin, and there's loneliness because of sin, and there's poverty because of sin, and there's people in prison because of sin. So be the love of God inserted into these situations to display my glory so that on the day you stand before me, I'm going to look at you and say, I was sick and you came to visit me. I was broke and I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I didn't have clothes on my body and you gave me something to wear. And you're going to be blown away because all you're expecting when you see the glory of Jesus, I mean, that's going to be a, a, a pretty intimidating sight. The King of kings and Lord of lords surrounded by every angel in heaven being seated and coronated on his throne. And they call you. <laughs> you're going <laughs> to, yeah, I don't even know why you're bothering, Lord. I mean, I already know I ain't making it in. See, that's funny. Because when I was sick, you came and visited me. When I was in prison, you came and visited me. When I was hungry, you came. Oh, do you think I'm going to turn you out of my house when you did that for me? Lord, I mean, maybe my, my, just my memory has been fried from just standing in your presence, but I don't remember giving you food. And I don't remember giving you clothes. Yeah, but when you did it to one of the, even the least of these, you did it for me. And here's the other thing. Not only did you do it for him, you did it as a representative of him. 
and you displayed his love and you displayed his grace and you did it because you have Jesus Christ flowing through you. You have the spirit of God in your life and you have the opportunity to be conformed. See, when you get the heart of Jesus, you can't help but want to reveal him wherever you go. Look, I get that some people are just churched. I understand that, man. I was in New England as the least churched area of the United States for 17 years. And then I went to the seventh most churched area of the United States. And man, I would see people that are just, yeah, my grandfather, my great grandfather was in this church and he built it. And my dad was in this church. And one of, you know, my relatives was a pastor and they've got all sorts of pedigree and they're living just like the world. They're churched. They come in, like we talked about last week, as consumers. And they come in, they decide whether they want to worship. True worshipers, and man, I love to worship. True worshipers are putting the, the image of the Father in front of them. And they're saying, Lord, you are merciful. You are good. You are generous. And because you are those things, I want to be like you. See, that's worship. That's worship. Worship is not like, I guess I like this song. Let me sing a few lines. That's not worship. Worship is, I don't care how you think I sing. Worship is, I don't care if I got snot running on my face. I don't care if you don't like my hands up in front. But I am putting Jesus before me intentionally so that I can leave this place and be like him. See, in this place, I worship him. In this place, I magnify him. In this place, I elevate him so that I can leave this place and be like him. That's what worship is. That's why we humble ourselves under the word. I've said this before. If the Lord, and I know Jesus is here because he said if two or three are, are, are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Man, I gotta believe I got at least two people, right, that are in this place. And so I believe Jesus is here. Jesus is never going to walk into the bridge church, sit down and say, man, I never thought of that. Man, this guy's good. Let me get out my notebook. He don't need it. We do. We do. You don't know how many times I have my own altar call before I get up and preach this. Lord, I know you called me to preach this. I need to spend some time in prayer and get my heart right before you. Because we are not here because God needs our worship. We are not here because God needs our instruction. We are not here because God needs our fellowship. We are here because we need all those things. We need each other. We need his word. We need to lift him up and to look on him again. Because you've been looking at mess all week. You've been looking at junk all week, even if you didn't intend to. You've been looking at stuff in the world and on the news and at your workplace and at your school and in your neighborhood that's messed. So we come in here. We look on him and we remind ourselves, <laughs> this ain't the end of the story. This life isn't what it's all about. One day, I'm going to be perfected and I'm going to be taller than you. Because <laughs> I'm already better looking than you. But I am not going to even be capable of sinning. And the devil won't be able to get within 100 miles of me. And there's going to be no temptation and no more mourning and no more tears and no more mess. And I'm just going to be able to walk and be what God has created me to be all along. What he always intended me to be. I'll be able to be that. That's what I'm looking forward to. And, that, and so, so if I'm serious about that, how important is my time on this earth? How important 
is my treasure? How important is my agenda? All that stuff is insignificant. And if, and if I can become more like Jesus, man, right now, if I always say, you know, when we have an offering, everybody pull your wallet out, hand it to your neighbor. Now give like you always wanted to give. Uh, but if you could like take out your wallet and look at whatever you have, even your checkbook, if God said, all right, you write a check for that amount and I will make you a great reward in heaven. I will make you more like my son. Who wouldn't do it, right? Who wouldn't do it? Because when we caught it, catch a glimpse of how insignificant, that's what the devil doesn't want us to do. The devil wants us to magnify our lives, magnify our preferences, magnify our politics, magnify our likes, magnify our dislikes. Because if we're doing that, we're not looking on Jesus. But when I lift up Jesus, I look at what's important to him. And I think about what matters to him. And I think about what's eternal and not just temporal. And when I do that, I become more like him. See, guys, there's a difference between doing something out of emotion or guilt and having a heart for it. You can come here Sunday after Sunday and be emotionally touched, but that alone won't change your life. Like I said, I love to worship, but, but the first thing that usually happens is, is an emotional response. But emotions are a wonderful doorway. They're a lousy destination. A little more than a week ago, just a week ago yesterday, I did a wedding. It was beautiful. It's just a small wedding, but it was a beautiful wedding. Now imagine if the couple, and I know they're here today, imagine, because I saw them walk in, imagine if they said, that's great, they went on their separate ways, and they said, you know, we don't really like each other, but we really love getting, having weddings. Every couple of weeks, we just do this, because it's just awesome, right? You'd be like, dude, you're messed. <laughs> that's, just, that's, just, that's just jacked up. It's, the wedding should be emotional. I've never, I've never seen a bride and a groom like, yeah, I mean, we just want to get this over with. I mean, you know, it's just like, Really? <laughs> My counsel is you don't get married then. So emotions are a wonderful doorway. They're a terrible destination, right? Some of us, we come in and we're like, oh man, that, that message, that song, that really just touched me. Well, that's great. Okay, wonderful. Man, we just had church. Hold up. Because if God don't think we had church, we didn't have church. Just because you think we had church don't mean we had church. See, God only says we have church if we leave this place and go be the church. See, if we're just church in the church, we ain't the church. See what I'm saying? If we're only the church when we're in the church, we're not the church. The church is the equipped saints of God, empowered and connected in intimacy with the heart of the Father, going out to represent Jesus. That's what we're called ambassadors for Christ. Because if the heart of Christ isn't guiding you, if you're believing as a Christian but not functioning as one, the great news is there's still time to do something about it. And if that's true and you do that, you will become so hungry for more that you're not going to sit around congratulating yourself. That's what the church do. That's what the Pharisees do. But think back. If you're really saved, think back to when you were first saved. You couldn't help but talk about Jesus. You couldn't help but give away that proverbial coat. Because you would never have wanted to do anything. But sometimes what happens is we begin to drift. We talk about this next week. We begin to drift. But it all boils down to a simple question. Do I love Jesus enough to love others the way that Jesus would? The great sin of this age, I, I, I saw a preacher put something up like, we need preachers that'll preach longer and that hell is hot and that the Bible, and I'm like, yeah, I, I get that. But you know what? I've been into a bunch of those churches and they're running about 15 people. 
Because you can preach everything you want and you can preach it right from the pulpit, but if you don't go out there and live it, it doesn't matter. And if anybody thinks that revival starts in the pulpit, you don't understand revival. Revival starts when the people of God get so hungry for the heart of God that they begin to cry out to God. Every great revival has been preceded by prayer and then God picks a vessel. You notice the pattern? Some of us say, man, if we just bring in this speaker, if we just had this kind of preacher, no, 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 no. God is waiting for the people of God to be so hungry for his move that they're crying out to him. They're showing up for prayer meetings. They're praying in their homes. They're praying in the car. And then he begins to move. And then he raises up somebody. Now I'll select somebody to go in there and preach to him. Jesus said that we train ourselves, train ourselves, discipline ourselves to begin to to acclimate ourselves to the things of God because he said, look out on the fields. They're white unto harvest. In other words, you're jacked up, you're messed up, but there's a whole lot of sinners out there. There's a whole lot of lost people out there and they need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he's looking at you and he says, I wanna shape you, I wanna mold you. I wanna work through you so that your works overflow and reveal who I really am. See, instead we have this instinct of self-preservation and we try to tend to grasp and to hold on to the things that we we have. Look, God understands why we behave selfishly. He's not ignorant of the dog-eat-dog nature of this fallen world. But God loves us enough to warn us that to remain like the world is to reject Christ. Because you will either be formed, and we've talked about this before, this carpet, this lectern, this shirt, this body, and every person in here is decaying. And this universe is winding down. And every star and every planet is going to fall apart and is going to turn into absolute nothingness. And if you have spent your life training yourself to be a citizen of that reality, terrible eternity. But if instead you take the opportunity to become a citizen of that great kingdom, see, do we like the Lord? willingly identify with the things that the world hates and reject? Do I have so much Jesus that I cannot help but be like him? We must learn the holy habit of both looking at the face of Jesus and looking at the world through the eyes of Jesus. It's one thing to intellectually agree that we should, and it's another thing entirely to actually run to the place where that becomes real in our lives. But when we're standing before Jesus, it's not going to be our intentions that are scrutinized. It's going to be the way we lived our lives. Did I have enough Jesus that I couldn't help look like Jesus? And what Jesus said in that very first parable is, the oil is available. It's not available at our convenience, but it's available. And we know where to get it. The question is, because Jesus said, by their fruit, you will know them. The question is, is, is pretty simple. If my actions are not like Jesus's, do I think I need to try harder? Or do I think I need more Jesus? Jesus.